Friends and comrades, welcome to another episode of the Highlands Bunker Podcast. This is Rob in the shadow of Rockford Tower in the Bunker Studio. Carl is joining remotely. Our guests today are both from the Delaware Office of Defense Services. They are colloquially known as public defenders. Uh, in Highlands Bunker, they are referred to as fellow travelers. Uh, a check on state power, they ensure that all citizens, regardless of resources and station, get some manner of due process in a system designed to provide as little of it as possible. Uh, one of the cornerstones of this edifice of impediment is the law officers, uh, law enforcement officers' bill of rights. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing the cop bill of rights, and we're going to be demanding robust reform. So, joining us is Misty Siemens. Uh, she's an assistant public defender. Hello. Hello. And John Afredo, uh, the public in, uh, information officer. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm glad you guys uh, were able to join today. I've been wanting to talk to you guys for a while. Much appreciated. Um, before we talk about uh, specific proposals, perhaps we can just get a quick overview of the law itself. Um, what carve-outs and special handling is sort of bestowed on police uh, and their records and their behavior? And how does this uh, generally impact oversight, transparency, transparency accountability, uh, simple fairness, whatever you want to call it? So Misty here, thanks for having us on. Um, I'm an assistant public defender here, as you mentioned, and I do felony caseload work as well as some of our policy work. So to go to your question, um, Delaware is in the minority of states in this country that has something called the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights or LEOBOR for short. And basically what that does is it sets out um, a series of statutes that set forth the internal affairs process when a police officer has been accused of misconduct. Very importantly for my office, it also has a specific confidentiality clause that makes police misconduct records secret. And we are the only state in the country specifically with a confidentiality clause in its law enforcement officer bill of rights that does block access to police misconduct records. And I'm sure you understand why that's really important for the work that we do. Um, our office represents 85% of people charged with a crime in the state of Delaware. And at this time, we have almost no way at all to get access to police misconduct records. The Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights in conjunction with Delaware's Freedom of Information Act um, make those records secret to Criminal Defense Council. Yeah, can you explain a little bit about how the there's also a FOIA tie-in to make sure that um, it, it's it's even more sort of the the cover-up is more robust, um, so those aren't available to anyone under really any circumstances. Right. So the confidentiality clause says police misconduct records are confidential, and it uh, also there's the FOIA law that makes um, certain records also confidential. There's specifically language in Delaware's FOIA law that says if a statute says it's secret, it's secret. So that's one way that these police misconduct records are still kept secret. Now, there are some carve-outs in Leobor. One is, and the only one, is that civil plaintiff's lawyers suing for specific types of injury or damages get access to police misconduct records when they're suing a cop. And so the importance of that is, right, that in a civil case where someone is suing a police officer because they have suffered some sort of injury or damage, 
they get access to those records. And ultimately, that case involves usually some sort of money uh, amount going for that injury or damage. The problem that my office faces is that we represent people who are sometimes facing the rest of their life in prison, and they don't have access to the same records uh, where there's a carve out for civil plaintiff's attorneys. So we're asking for just an even playing field here. Um, we are asking for the records to at least be provided to criminal defense counsel, in addition to public access um, to these specific records. And, you know, kind of to continue on that note, most states, there's at least some sort of access to police misconduct records. In um, several states, there's complete full public access to police misconduct records. So we're not talking about something that is a rarity. Uh, we're talking about something that is happening in most other states and where the sky hasn't fallen. Also to that point, you know, in California, it had a law making police misconduct records confidential. It changed its law in 2018 to increase access to these records for certain things like use of force, sexual misconduct, and acts of dishonesty. California's population is 39 times the size of Delaware's and the sky hasn't fallen. In New York, they repealed their law enforcement officer bill of rights in 2020 and the sky has not fallen. And so we're asking for um, the ability to represent our clients and give them as fair as a possible chance at trial. To put this in perspective, police officers are uh, sometimes the only um, and usually the main witness in a criminal case. And so a lot of what a police officer does or says in connection to an investigation matters. And it matters whether the police officer has himself engaged previously in use of force, acts of dishonesty, acts of abuse of authority, abuse of trust, possibly sexual misconduct. That stuff may be relevant to whether that officer is particularly credible in investigating one of our clients and being the main witness in that case. Before we move on, I, I want you to touch on one thing that you mentioned, that there is precedent to uh, not just reform, which is what most of the groups who are advocating this issue right now in Delaware, but there is precedent to repeal it uh, in, in, in total. Uh, New York did that uh, with, uh, with no, uh, that I know of, sort of ill effect as far as... Uh, you know, p police sort of uh, human resources or personnel issues. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that just so people know that that is in the cards, like it doesn't have to be this way? Well, sure. I mean, first of all, most states in the country do not have something like Leobor. And Delaware hasn't had this forever. This was something that uh, came about in my understanding of the legislative history, and maybe John can talk more to it, 1985. The confidentiality clause uh, was introduced in 1991 um, and was vetoed, we believe, by um, Governor Mike Castle at the time. It was brought back in 1995 and passed. So the confidentiality clause and all this jazz was not always part of the Delaware law. Um, so most states don't have something like we have. Most states allow access to this. And um, I think New York is probably the most recent example that comes to mind of completely repealing it. There are other states that are also considering a full repeal. Um, but I think it's you know, worth mentioning that in most states, they don't even have something like this. And it's the only profession that I know of in the state of Delaware that has its own 
Bill of Rights. Um, and it's certainly the only one I know of that specifically has a confidentiality clause making the records regarding misconduct completely secret. I think that's... That's always the jumping off point that, that I use as sort of like a, a history, somebody who just tries to understand history. Last year, I had a conversation with A.G. Jennings, and I introduced this topic, the Cop Bill of Rights, by asking, like, well, why do we have this? We didn't always have it. Sort of, as you explained, there was a, a process uh, not too long ago to do this. So we have a, we have a, you know, a state-sanctioned armed of the government, you know, paramilitary, who has the exclusive monopoly on the use of violent force. And those public servants get a special carve-out where teachers don't get, nurses don't get, you know, all other type of public servants don't get. So there, it, I don't see how we can approach discussing reform or repeal until we come to terms with like, well, why, why did we do this in the first place? Think about that and like, did it work? People, I think, and I don't know, maybe John will have uh, some thoughts about that and then sort of how it will, how that would instruct how we approach sort of advocating for the repeal or the reform of it. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I think, you know, Misty and I can probably take this in tandem a little bit, but, you know, when we look back at the legislative history, I think what we found was that there are a lot of due process concerns and, and that's kind of how this began. It kind of morphed and evolved, as Misty kind of noted over the years, um, to add these confidentiality clauses. And, you know, as best as I can remember from listening to some of the audio, which I want to give a big shout out to uh, Joel, the legislative librarian down in um, Dover, because that guy is just, he puts in the work, and I really appreciate his work. Um, but, you know, he was able to get me some of the audio from the old sessions back in, like, the 90s. And, you know, one of the things we found that was kind of contemplated was that you know, that confidentiality clause was actually added because I think, you know, there was someone, an officer, I think, who was going through like a custody battle. And, you know, his spouse or his former spouse was using, you know, stuff within his or was trying to use stuff in his disciplinary files in, in the um, context of a custody battle. But, you know, it's not for the public defender's office to weigh in on stuff like that. But just to give a sense of some history as to kind of how that at least conversation started or at least how it was framed, you know, that's what we found and kind of what it come today is kind of you know it's a little different as misty said you know it, it's it's not like this in a lot of other states yeah because it is so um because it is so unique for delaware and we have a lot of unique sort of quirks that people don't understand uh whether they be on the sort of the corporate side or the, the law enforcement side which i think probably go together um but yeah you mentioned that this came up as, as due process so it was just sort of like to, to ensure that police officers specifically in other aspects of their life uh, had due process. When you say due process concerns was the facilitator, is that kind of what you mean? It was mostly like that they had rights when their job performance was called into question or when they were being, um, you know, subject to an internal investigation. That sounds about right, Misty? Um, it, the interesting part of just listening to the audio is that it sounded like back in the 80s, actually, um, the police chiefs, towns, counties, municipalities opposed the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights because they were concerned about, and I'm quoting um, Representative Sills at the time, who became eventually the mayor of Wilmington, um, he didn't want the foxes guarding the chicken house. Um, and so a lot of the concerns back in 1985, unfortunately, have come to light. 
I mean, listening to some of the legislative history, um, and I, I'm sorry, I misspoke. That was Representative Overly, the sponsor at the time, um, uh, connected to a question from then Representative Sills, who became the mayor. I there was a lot of understanding in the uh, different debates over the bill that there was going to be a lot of concerns about uh, what would happen if uh, the internal affairs process is handled, you know, by police or police. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get too much out of our wheelhouse, though. Our wheelhouse is that we're very concerned about the confidentiality clause when it comes to these materials, because I don't. I think what people in Delaware don't understand is how secretive it is. When someone either outside as a community member or a police officer internally makes a complaint, that entire process, from my understanding, because it is essentially a, a, a secret process, is it's handled internally by other police officers. Um, and all of that stuff is secret. And so whether it's substantiated or not substantiated or something else, that stuff doesn't come to light. Now, here's an example, right? We're not talking in hypothetical. Uh, in the recent case, unfortunately, of Yaheem Harris, he was shot, it seems like between two to four times, I believe four times, by a Wilmington police officer. After that happened, there were allegedly inconsistent statements about from the police officer who shot Yaheem Harris about whether he changed the barrel of his police department issued gun. My understanding of reading some of the documents connected to that case is that the problem became that even the Department of Justice did not know that there had been inconsistent statements about whether the gun had been changed or not, the barrel of the firearm, allegedly. That's the type of stuff that keeps people that do the work John and I up at night because there were a lot of you know, very good defense attorneys um, helping Nehem Harris on that case. And but for a source coming to the Department of Justice and telling them about these inconsistent statements, none of that would ever made its way into discovery. Um, and that's the problem that this stuff just keeps happening over and over again. People are shot, inconsistent statements are kept private, and we have you know possibly um, people sitting in prisons right now that um, are there because of. Uh, we don't know officers who have engaged in dishonesty, possibly officers who have engaged in um, tampering of evidence, possibly officers who have been involved in bribing or the abuse of authority. And so that's kind of the, the thing that we're very, very, very concerned about is access to these records, um, being able to provide our clients a fair trial um, and trying to do whatever we can to help them. Yeah, it's certainly... Whatever the history is, it, it certainly becomes something of a of a, of a way to just protect. I mean, we know just from information that's leaked out, and we know just from what we are able to witness, whether we see it on body cam footage or we see it on CCTV footage, like with Yahim Harris. At least we had some sense of what was going on. Like we knew you could see he was running away. Across the street. You could see it. You, you knew he wasn't armed. They tried to pretend like he was, but then the evidence came out. So what we're seeing is just basically a, a way to just abort or, or stop any kind of justice because you can't interrogate 
anything anybody's done. Uh, and it's, it, I, 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 I see it in all of these different cases, and that's why I guess what we'll do is talk about some of the specific reforms and how they will uh, sort of help in this, in this process of getting this information out. The one is the data one. Can you talk about um, what some other states have and how they're able to use that to sort of balance the playing field out in the way that you're talking about? So there are plenty of states that have complete databases um, chock full of different police misconduct information. Um, again, the sky has not fallen from that information. There are uh, once, you know, the news media or nonprofit organizations or universities or even, you know, folks who help train police officers can get a hand on some of that information. There's some been some good stuff that comes out of that. You can start processing the numbers. I mean, you know, some of the, because the data is more likely to be released in New York City, for instance, we know how the stop and frisk policy there was completely abused and uh, more black men were stopped under the stop and frisk policies there than almost any other type of person in New York. That type of data is important because then what it says to either people in my profession who can maybe show, you know, that officers saying, well, he was walking funny, so therefore I got to stop him because I thought he had a firearm is a systematic problem with not all of those people they're stopping have firearms. I can raise potential possibly constitutional issues against that process, that system. Um, but it can also help on just understanding what some of the problems that we have in the police force are, for instance. In California, the um, news media there kind of collectively took on taking the um, data that they got into a searchable database. And for the public, what this means is that you get to know who is policing your street. And I think that that matters more than almost anything in this whole conversation. So for instance, another example, um, Thomas Webster was a Dover police officer who uh, kicked a man's head um, and was taken to trial on that and acquitted. He moved on after I believe what was reported as a $230,000 payout by Dover police or the city of Dover to leave. He went to Maryland where he got to work as a police officer there. In 2019, he's the responding officer where a young uh, black man, 19 years old, Anton Black dies in police custody. It, was, it came to light after that, I believe, that there were nearly 30 use of force reports from Dover that were never turned over to the Maryland police as part of the hiring process. This information, as far as we know, is not even turned over to other police departments in other states. Um, and to go on with that, you know, there's also case law in Delaware. I don't want to get too wonky, but it's important. There's case law in Delaware where even the prosecutor's office has had to fight to get this stuff. State versus Watson, 2002. Police, uh, prosecutors arrested a police officer um, for alleged sexual misconduct. They subpoenaed his internal affairs file. The city of Wilmington moved to quash, meaning say, saying, hey, we're not going to give this to you. They had to go through the court process to get it. They got it. And there was a bunch of stuff um, that would never have been turned over otherwise because of the confidentiality clause. In that particular case, and this is in a public court case, there was credibility concerning an automobile accident, credibility concerning sick time policy violations, and incident abuse of force, 
and his association with known criminals. So not even the prosecutor's office back in 2002 had access to this info until they had to go through the court process. And I just want to be clear about that. Criminal defense attorneys could possibly get these records, but you have to go through a process called Snowden versus State. And my research of the case law shows that the only times I can find written opinions where um, a criminal defense attorney has been able to get these records are when the police officer um, has been terminated or arrested. And that's it. Um, so when we hear information or there's a pattern of conduct we hear from clients, that, as far as I can find, is not necessarily good enough. Um, arrest or termination seems to be the standard to get this information. But then when you look at something like the case I just listed to you, all this stuff happened and he wasn't terminated. Um, and that's, that's the type of information that I believe does exist. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself. There are a lot of police officers in this state that I think do a lot of good work. And a lot of the time, my client is the victim of stuff that happens. Um, and I've seen police officers who really are working towards justice, working to help their communities. But then there's all these other instances of things where but for someone going to the news journal or but for a source going to the Department of Justice, we would never know about it otherwise. And that's the type of thing that I think my office is really pushing for, for wanting to see some reform in this regard, because we know it exists, but we don't know what we don't know. And we're not getting access to these records in a way to give our clients a fair trial. Um, I'd like to expand this a little more broadly, and maybe you can give me your, your thoughts about it. It's more of a more of a, not a hypothetical, but just sort of how this would work in a in a in a more just sort of fair environment with major reform or repeal to this statute. Two incidences that have happened in Wilmington in the last uh, year to year and a half. Uh, Jabri Hunter is what appears to have been sort of startled and either passed out or asleep in his car at Eleventh and Walnut, <clears throat> who then. Then there's some occurrence, and he's shot by the cops. And obviously, in that part of town, we all know that CCTV is is replete. So I, I'm sure that there's several different angles of, of something that we could at least look at. Um, I think we have the same situation on Riverside just a few months ago, or just a month ago, where some, for some reason, Newcastle County police startle another person who's asleep in their car, um, startle them awake. Uh, they, you know, there's a he tries to get away or doesn't understand what's happening and is shot by the Newcastle County police. Uh, it's my understanding we have because they have body cams and dash cams, so there's there'll be video of that. Uh, Matt Marshall of the AG's office tells me that as is their new procedure, that video will become available when the DCRPT report comes out. Now, it would make sense to me that all of that report would include these officers' histories, what they're, what, you know, uh, what kind of citizen, uh, you know, uh, excessive force uh, reports have been made on them and all other kinds of things. But we will not get any of that because of this statute. And 
do you think that some of these reforms can potentially be can potentially help not only your defense but just the general accountability and transparency of the criminal justice system which you know we're all trying to make a little more equitable i guess to say so it's it's a, it's sort of a it's sort of a more of a hypothetical question about what some of these reforms could do so maybe it's more of a john question i'm not sure um, but i'll let i'll let any of you any of you take it I mean, I'll tell you that the direct, so those are a little bit of a hard example, you know, in the, in the most recent example with the Newcastle County officers in Wilmington, um, unfortunately, that man passed away. Um, but I will tell you, you know, in my cases, uh, where my, my clients have uh, been at the brunt of some sort of level of force by a police department, I think that a jury wants to hear this stuff. And what it is, is it's used for, in my opinion, um, a credibility determination. Um, the only police departments I know of in Newcastle County that have um, body-worn camera recording devices are Middletown, Newcastle County. Uh, that's about it. Um, and so we have a lot of what the police officer said happened versus what my client said happened. And it's very hard to find you know, civilian witnesses to come forward for court to say any difference. And a lot of the time it presents itself in the pretrial context where, you know, the police officer, for example, says, I smelled weed, uh, so I stopped the person, but there was no marijuana found. That is a very common thing. Um, body camera footage would help with that, not because of the smell, but to find out the interaction. I have found the body camera process to be very, very helpful. Um, in finding out what happened in police stops and searches and things like that. Yeah, I did have a question about that too. Maybe we could. This is a good time since you brought it up, and I didn't want to. I don't want to interrupt you too much. But if you could even elaborate a little more about body cameras, because I'm very skeptical of them. Um, you know, for example, I listened and we did a little piece on John Carney's State of the State address. And the only two things he said about any of this was that they banned chokeholds last year and w at some point we'll have body cameras. And I guess going falling back on my original examples, it's like even when we sometimes see it, um, it doesn't help if the statutes are still there. If the, if the concepts are still there to keep everything secret, to figure out a way to not be able to obtain these or to, or, or to use systemic sort of holdups, I'm always very skeptical of body cameras. I'm even skeptical of some of the people in, in my circles and my comrades and activists in Wilmington who are prioritizing that because I'm not sure whether or not that's of a good first step. I think we have to have all the other things in place first to be able to utilize what we know because right now it's all secret anyway. Um, but again, I'm, I, if you could elaborate a little more about uh, the body cams and how they have been helpful and maybe if, if there's any sort of, I don't know um, what data there would be, but but I am interested in that, that bit of it as well. Yeah, I mean, we get body cameras just through what's called the discovery process where when I have a criminal case and there was body cameras, I generally get those things. And, um, you know, what people should know is that right now, um, you know, the police officer activates the body camera him or herself. Um, once they touch the button that activates it, to my understanding, the video will come on 30 seconds before the button is touched. So you'll get video of 30 seconds before the button was touched and audio and visual of, of once the button is um, touched. And so that body camera is kind of under the operation of the police officer. It 
has for me has been a has been a tremendous asset because it's like the crazy thing is is you know most of the time the things match up but i think to myself reviewing some of this stuff sometimes like the police report says all these text messages about drug dealing just started popping up on the defendant's phone i didn't have to start searching through it just started popping up and then you watch the body camera footage and it's like the police officer picking up the phone and scrolling through messages and apps, which in my opinion, and I believe a lot of lawyers' opinion would be called a search. You need a search warrant for, um, you know, police officers saying that the uh, defendant fled. But when you look at the body camera footage, that person doesn't flee. They just start patting him down. Now, to kind of, you know, play both sides here, the studies show that body camera footage helps both sides. It makes civilians feel safer because they know the police officer's conduct is being recorded. But it also makes police officers safer because the community knows they're being recorded as well. And so it's a two-way street. And at the end of the day, I want my clients to be safe. And I do think that body cameras make them safer. Um, and so there's a lot of positives to the body camera um, recordings that I've seen that have either gone to credibility um, or have, I think, you know, held a lot of um, the standards higher so that everyone is safe, police officers and civilians and my clients. Yeah, I guess it's just hard when, we, when we've seen so many, um, I mean, we can go back not to uh, go back to the same thing, but since we were talking about it, you see the Webster thing, uh, that was, there's, you know, video of him kicking the guy in the face, uh, and that didn't seem, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, there was a scandal about another young man being killed and not getting some personnel files that, didn't, that went anywhere, so my skepticism, maybe it's been, uh, maybe it's been touched a little bit, but it, it persists, I think. Um, I don't know, John, do you have anything on that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, I interrupt you. I'm sorry. I understand that. And, you know, it's not like 100% deterrent, but like, what if we didn't have that stuff? Yeah. You know, and he his, he fell on the curb, you know, and that was the right. story. So. Yeah. yeah, I think the only thing I would add is, is, you know, I think body cameras are a good thing. I think they're a fundamentally good thing that are only going to kind of advance the cause of, you know, increasing transparency and accountability. Um, but, you know, there's always the caveat is that, you know, something like that is only as good as the policies that are enacted to kind of support this. And it's only as good as the support that are given that, that's given to the agencies that are going to have to enact this change. Right. So, like, you know, reviewing footage takes a lot of time. You know, it takes a lot of time for the prosecutors that are reviewing the footage. It takes a lot of time for our attorneys that are reviewing the footage. So, like. It's one thing to kind of make sure that all the cameras are there, but there are a lot of other ancillary costs that kind of need to be covered. And so, I mean, like any sort of reform, it all sounds good on paper, but, you know, the back end needs to be kind of taken care of as well. I mean, that, that would be kind of my wonky input there. Well, I don't know if you had, um, uh, Misty, if you had anything to add on uh, what you were talking about before when I sort of gave the examples of, uh, you, you had mentioned body cams first, and I think you might have had something else, but I sidetracked you, so I apologize for that. I love a good sidetrack. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess what I was just saying was that, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, um, I think that those, the footage of the mobile vehicle recording devices from the actual police cars and any body camera footage from the officers um, can, you know, be used 
in a way that helps lawyers from day to day, but also any you know, information about whether a police officer through the inter internal affairs process has engaged in misconduct can also be useful in court to, for instance, show the jury that there's possibly some credibility issues when it is a, you know, cop said, defendant said situation. Um, when uh, there's possible, you know, resisting arrest charges, but the officer himself um, has used force several times, um, either, you know, in the microcosm of that case or in the pattern of conduct. Um, that stuff I think is, are, is information that makes sure that a client has a fair trial uh, and is something that a jury, I think, I think wants to know. Because you know this type of stuff regarding civilian witnesses could possibly be admissible. I mean, if there's credibility concerns regarding a witness that's not a police officer, we can get into that. If there um, are possibly issues with other character evidence like recklessness, um, uh, dishonesty, uh, violence, that stuff can potentially be useful for self-defense claims, for instance, things like that. And so it's uh, it would be an important, I think, asset to have in making sure that we can uh, make sure our clients are just having a fair shot at all of this that matters. And more than that, I think the community wants this, right? The community who's not getting arrested and not facing trial, we've heard overwhelming support from the community that want access to these records um, so that they know who's actually policing their streets, who are getting payouts from um, city, town, state governments um, they leave. Um, police officers who are allegedly jurisdiction hopping, you know, they leave one place with an, you know, a retirement and hop to another smaller police department. That type of stuff, I think, does matter to the greater community. It's not just for folks who are arrested and facing sometimes the rest of their life in prison. Yeah, I, I mean, this this all leads to the, the bigger issue that I always think about. My my wife is a public health nurse and you know, they take sort of the license, the licensing very seriously, uh, social workers, doctors, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, I, uh, lawyers. I mean, if, if you don't act appropriately, uh, there will be consequences and your other lawyers are, are, are watching, are watching you too. Uh, but for some reason, the public, the, the, the armed public servant, uh, it's the other way around, you know, and I, I just hope that all of these sort of things start to start to change that dynamic. You know, I, I you know, we're not going to abolish the police. Uh, I mean, some people love to, uh, you know, I would probably still chant it, uh, but you know, it's not happening. At least in my lifetime, it's not happening. So, why not create a, a, a you know, why not create a, a a, a group of public servants who we can trust like uh, like most social workers uh, or, or or nurses nurse Susan um, it just it just makes sense and and to that end I want to dip into a a, a a topic that just gets controversy all over the place here in, in the city and, and and everywhere uh, the civilian review board because this is another one of the um, proposals that could at least uh, give give a citizen some uh, look into this process and some oversight into this process to be able to have a some kind of public uh, interlocutor. Um, can you talk about what the, your proposals would be and maybe talk about not only some of the successes in other places, which you've mentioned in your memo, but um, some of the controversy surrounding it as well? So I... Um... 
our office doesn't have a hand in any sort of necessarily direct creation of a civilian review board or civilian oversight. But what I do know about civilian oversight is that in most cities in the country, it's, it's pretty much a normal practice now. And as far as I know, the only example in Delaware um, is the city of Wilmington's bill, uh, which I believe was passed, um, that goes to civilian review boards. I'm not sure if it was passed or not, but I know that it was definitely introduced. I don't think I don't think it was passed. Actually, it was introduced, and I think that's why I called it controversial because I believe there was like uh, some sort of controversy about it. Um, because again, this is they don't want civilian oversight. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's going down, or maybe the controversy was about the makeup. Uh, you know how how many uh, of each sort of uh, from 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 the public from the public. Uh, sector, maybe from the law enforcement, what you maybe you would have a public defender or a, somebody from the Office of Defense Services on the board, whatever. I think that was talked about, but I'm not sure this is a this is a done deal here. I, I have to double check it. Yeah, I'm not sure um, uh, whether it's passed or not, but I do. I did look at the bill that was introduced, and as far as I can tell, in my research of civilian oversight and civilian review boards, it looks like a good bill. What I read in the paper, uh, without talking to the to the folks involved directly is that, you know, meaningful civilian oversight cannot happen without a change to the law enforcement officer bill of rights. Um, you know, in a lot of places, there's at least um, some sort of review of, of data um, of police activity, of uh, even the internal affairs of police officers. And without being able to have access to that information, um, it's it's a lot. It's tough for a civilian oversight to board to do the work that I think it needs to do, and that is not to in any way um, look down upon Wilmington's effort to try to get that through. They themselves, from my reading of the newspaper, have acknowledged that Leo Bohr has to change so that civilian oversight can like really happen, um, and that's why I think our office has really tried to take a position on greater access to this stuff. Because nothing police reform, I really think, can start happening until that changes. Yeah, John, did you have something to add? You know, not totally. I, I think Bisty kind of summed it up really well. And, and I think that the message that I think we've been trying to hammer home is that, you know, Leo Bohr and kind of reforming Leo Bohr is kind of the key to all of this. You know, it's kind of the key to the effective police reform um, you know, the increased sort of transparency and accountability, both, you know, in terms of access for us, for the greater public, for people who want to establish civilian review boards, it all kind of stems from that, right? Like that's, you know, that's kind of the key. Yeah. I mean, that was the uh, sort of my thinking when <clears throat> just specifically with the body cams, you know, it's like the, the key is to somehow agree that, you know, there's no special... There's no special handling that's suitable uh, that's going to be just the secret use of power like this. Uh, and, and this sort of advocacy is that is the first step in that. You know, until we, until we, we agree that that's inappropriate in the system that we have, because it's completely unbalanced. Um, not only is it unbalanced, it's unbalanced to the people who already had all of the monopoly in the first place. The law and violence is on their side. Um, so, you know, until we can agree that that situation is not, not right, 
then a lot of this other, a lot of these other reforms, I mean, just your job is going to be nearly impossible. All of these other reforms are going to be, you know, either impossible or, or no way to implement them really, because there's no check, there's no oversight whatsoever. So I guess to wrap up, I just kind of, um, want to talk about the, the, the potential that you think, uh, can happen. You know, I know there's already been, uh, some, some hearings, you, uh, several groups, uh, including the office of defense services have submitted, uh, proposals and, and memos to the, to the committee. And the plan is to have some reform legislation reviewed this session. So where does that stand as far as you guys know? And, um, and how do you feel about what could come out of this session of the legislature? Part of the Justice for All package back in June of 2020 was the inclusion or at least the um, consideration of some sort of legislation that would amend Leobor and allow greater access to Leobor. Um, and so it's certainly my hope that legislators as part of the Justice for All package introduce a bill that amends Leobor between March and June of 2021, um, allowing other elements of, um, of, of, you know, the task force and subcommittees and things like that to do their work. Um, without the, a legislative change to Leobor being introduced in the spring of 2021, um, I, I worry that a lot of the work that really needs to be done on, you know, broader issues like civilian oversight or police database or what that would look like are not going to be able to happen. So it's my hope that something is introduced, um, spring of 2021. And, and, you know, to add to what Misty said, you know, I, I will say personally that I feel pretty good and I feel pretty optimistic about this because I think we're talking about stuff that hasn't really been talked about before. And the conversation that's occurring, I find to be fairly positive. You know, you have the AG, you know, I listened to your podcast with the AG and she spoke pretty positively about reform in this area. I think that, you know, when you hear people talk from New York about kind of the process that they went through to get to where they are, they talked about kind of the sea change they saw following George Floyd's murder, kind of how people started getting into these really kind of deep policy ideas like Leo Bohr, and I can't remember exactly what New York's was specifically called, whether it was, I think it was like 50A or something like that. Um, you know, that became a thing. You'd see it trending on Twitter. You'd see it being used in a hashtag. You'd see stories specifically about these policy points. And the fact that, like, you know, we're even now talking about Leo Bohr, the fact that Leo Bohr is being talked about in the papers, to me, is a significant change in both discourse and what people are paying attention to. Because it means that people have really gotten into kind of the nitty-gritty about kind of what's driving this system, and they've kind of found what really needs to change. And I, I find that to be really awesome, honestly. And, and, you know, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but that to me is just something that I have not seen happen before. Yeah, and I think the change that I'm, you know, hoping for will be propelled by the community. Like when I watch um, the virtual hearings for, you know, interesting bills like HB 37 regarding the Department of Correction and credit time for inmates that have been serving during coronavirus, I was blown away by how much public support there was for that bill. And, you know, in my opinion, that's how that bill got out of committee. And if people care about transparency, accountability, access, uh, police reform, Black Lives Matter, uh, if you care about these issues, then, you know, I think our request 
is please let your legislators know that this is what you want. I do think the calls matter. I do think that calling into the virtual hearing matters. I think that the public comment matters. I don't want to sound naive about it, but I, I, when I went to the HB 37 hearing just out of curiosity and there was 50 people telling real stories, not reading from like some sort of standard, you know, carbon copy talking point, talking about their loved one who is in jail or their loved one who died in prison. That's the type of story that I think really resonates with our legislators. And um, I think that there hopefully is the appetite to handle an issue like this in the spring of 2021 in the General Assembly. Um, you know, there's some really great folks who care a lot about these issues. Um, and I am hoping that public support plus um, knowing that, in my opinion, it's, it's the right thing to do, which again might sound Pollyanna, but it is my belief that this is the right thing to do and the, if the right time is now, that this will hopefully be reformed um, and be changed, um, by, by summertime. Yeah. And, and just, uh, if I may, just to kind of add on to what Misty said there too, I, I think, you know, you, you didn't ask this question, but I'm just going to put it out there. You know, I think some of the most important work that people can do in the community, especially people kind of, of the left kind of persuasion is to kind of lift up voices from impacted communities and people that have been directly impacted by this and to lift up their voice, to empower them, to give them the tools that they need to reach out to their lawmakers, to testify mm -hmm. during these things, because that's how this gets done. I mean, I can tell you from experience working on, you know, expungement bills for both juveniles and adults, like that stuff gets done when people who are impacted are there front and center. It's not Misty, it's not me, it's not ODS, it's real people and real people drive change. Yeah, I was very... Um happy to see when I reviewed all of the submissions to the subcommittee uh, that you sent that not only were was yours there and, and, and one from the uh, Department of Justice there, but a lot of grassroots people I know, a lot of uh, grassroots organizations that I work with every day, people I know. I'm like, hey, I, I know Becca Cotto. She wrote, she wrote one. You know, I know, I know Network Delaware. You know, I know, you know. So, so there is this groundswell of, of not only... Um, institutional support which is going to be necessary but real grassroots support um you know i you know i, I always i you know i'm not naive either i know that while there is grassroots support for a, a big agenda and there was big electoral victories won that the process itself is designed to to jam a lot of this up um but i am but but that, i'm not deterred by that because i do see that uh, you know, it has become part of the discussion now. Uh, people are able to say, as John just said, of the left persuasion, people can just say that. Yeah, we, we want reform for this. We, there's, there's a list of things we want. This is one of them. You know, and we have these grassroots groups together, uh, you know, not only ginning up support, but, but writing, writing papers, giving you the information and helping people get to where they need to be to tell their story. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, Maybe I'm not optimistic about uh, any immediate gratification. I'm too old and cynical for that. Uh, but I do think that um, I, 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 am, I am very encouraged um, by the, the level and, and the diversity and the, and the power behind the organizing and the advocacy that's happening. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I've got to thank you guys for doing a lot of it.
So I, I very much appreciate it. I th- and thank you for taking the time uh, to do this today. I appreciate that very much. And thank you, Rob, you know, for bringing up police reform and criminal justice issues on your podcast. It really does matter that people start to, you know, know what's going on and realize sometimes, you know, how uh, backwards we are in some of these particular things. I mean, that we are, I don't think people generally know that we're the last state in the country with a confidentiality clause that goes this far. And just spreading the word um, has, I think, really, is a really, really helpful thing that you do. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I think you you guys might be interested in speaking of spreading the word. Uh, it'll be out by the time this is out, so I, I can tell you. Uh, tomorrow, um, I, I interviewed Monique Fagans, who's an activist, a BLM activist uh, in Delaware, and we recorded an open appeal to the AG to drop the charges uh, about the incident the 5th of September at 4th and Market. They arrested two people. One is a 14-year-old boy, so we focused mostly on dropping the charges for, for the for the, the school, <laughs> kids still in school, um, but that'll go out tomorrow. The AG's office knows that's coming out. I have a few people that are willing to um, to kind of rep it in their sort of social media and, and, and internet spaces. Um, but yeah, I hope you listen to that too, because you know, I think the AG, uh, while is it, it's a, um, and, and some, I guess Misty mentioned it, um, you know, she seems like she does want to be a partner in this, um, which is great. You know, I, I always take, you know, I, I know that she has other, she has a lot of other political uh, sort of uh, things she needs to think about and calculations she needs to make. Um, but I, I, I'm interested to see what she does in this case um, because, you know, we, we need, not only the grassroots, but we need, you know, institutional support as well to do something here. So I guess we'll see. Well, again, um, John and Misty, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, as they said, everyone, con- you know, get involved however you can. There's going to be show notes here. Uh, we'll probably talk about what Network Delaware is doing in the show notes. We'll probably link to all of the memos and the documents that were submitted to the committee so you can look at all of the uh, all of the groups that are behind this. So, yeah, this this sort of criminal justice reform is going to be integral to a lot of a lot of different stuff that we're trying to do as a as a as a leftist project, as a people's project and try to improve people's lives. And and this is one of the big ones. So um, I want to thank you guys again. Uh, Left is best, everybody.